Hey everybody, Larry Powell here, your host for Studio HFL, where you truly do hear from legends. Thanks for joining me again for another terrific interview. And this week's guest is Brian Balmages, composer and arranger. Brian talks a bit about what it takes to write for different levels of performers, but you won't hear that story in this interview. But you can listen to that story if you become a Patreon patron. More about that in just a minute. But right now, I need to let you know more about the show sponsors. And we'll start with Messina Covers. Messina Covers is not just any other case company. David Messina and Erica Howard design and produce some of the most beautiful cases that fit both form and function. You can choose your case design, fabric and trim color, custom embroidery, and more. Find out more at MessinaCovers.net. Thursday evenings at 8 p.m. is when you can tune in and listen to the radio version of these interviews. Each week I choose highlights from an interview and add in musical selections written in or performed by the guest. And you can find this show on the FM dial at 88.7 WICR The Diamond. You can also tune in via the iHeartRadio app. Again, that's each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern. Peter Pickett and his crack team of craftspeople are continually innovating and providing the trumpet community with spectacular options for stock and custom mouthpieces. He and Eric Marine can help you find just the right size to fit your needs, and you should definitely consider trying the acrylic cup and rim. And if you're in the market for a custom trumpet, then Peter and Eric can build a Blackburn trumpet just for you. Check them out at picketblackburn.com. To stay current on what's going on with Studio HFL, you can follow me on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Studio HFL. And you can watch the live and pre-recorded interviews on the YouTube channel. And you know, while you're there, you ought to just go ahead and subscribe. My first experience with a Hammond Design mouthpiece has turned into a bit of an obsession. From one to, well, I think it's more than 30 now. Um, and just don't tell my wife. There's something very comfortable about playing one of Carl's mouthpieces. The comfort, response, and sound are part of that HD experience. Try one of the stock mouthpieces or have Carl make you a custom one. Either way, everything is better in HD. You can find out more at carlhammonddesign.com. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would love it if you would take just a couple of minutes, go to Apple Podcast, and leave a star rating and a review. Doing so will help improve the visibility of this podcast and draw more listeners. When I first tried an Eastman B-flat trumpet a few years ago, I was blown away by the playability and the sound. And the more I found out about the company and got to know the people, I knew that this was a company I wanted to have a relationship with. There's a drive for excellence in design and production of every instrument, not just the high-end products. And the proof of this is the one and only Doc Severinsen helped design the Eastman Beginner Model Trumpet. I still play my B-flat and have added a spectacular cornet and flugelhorn to my arsenal. Find out more at eastmanwins.com. I would love it if you would visit the Studio HFL website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. While you're there, you can also visit the merch page and buy a Studio HFL shirt for yourself and as a gift for someone else. Of course, that is at studiohfl.com. My current situation with my C trumpet is ridiculous. My Shire C, which Samantha Lane helped me trial and choose, is the most versatile C I've ever played. The line of Shire's trumpets includes the Q series, which are production models, and the custom series, which is exactly that, they're custom horns. Either way you go, you'll love the sound you get, and you'll also experience exceptional customer service. Find out more at seshires.com. And lastly, here's how you can access exclusive content like the interview excerpts. 
I'd like to invite you to become a part of the Studio HFL community by going to Patreon and choosing from one of the four tiers of support. You can help to financially support this show for as little as $36 per year. That's only $3 a month, of course. Benefits include exclusive access to interview excerpts, a behind-the-scenes report, an invitation to be in the room with a guest during an interview, product discounts, and more. Join the community of faithful supporters by visiting patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on with my interview with Brian Belmages. Good morning. Good morning. Well, obviously you can hear me and I can hear you. That's good. Hey, well, then I guess we've accomplished everything we need to accomplish, right? <laughs> Roll credits. We're done. Um, Got it. Yeah. So I have to ask, because um, it's funny, I saw Rex post about you the other day. Yeah. Um, and so the HFL, right? He's like, guess what it means. Now, I'm a trumpet player, so I'm assuming it's high effing loud. Uh, close. Higher, faster, louder was supposed to be, well, it was the original meaning. Okay. Well, then I, I still feel like I get credit. Well, you should hear what some of the answers have been. I, it used to be something I asked every guest at the beginning, and I would get some, uh, I think Jeff Kernow said, Haydn, Frackenpole, and something else. You know, it's like the furthest thing from, from that. Um, and then uh, maybe two months ago, uh, I changed it to Hear From Legends. Oh, that's it, good. That's it's a little more appropriate, I think, for uh, and, and maybe would be taken a little more seriously. Potentially. Potentially, right? We are dealing with trumpet players, right? Right. So, uh, in fact, uh, Jeff did my new logo. Jeff Kerna did my new logo. So, oh, okay. um, yeah, and uh, I'm I'm just now getting some merchandise made with that on it, which is nice because my wife is a screen printer, which makes that pretty easy. <laughs> Yeah, and certainly you've got the time to work on that right now, so... Yeah, uh, fortunately and unfortunately. Right, right exactly. So, uh, let me do a formal welcome. Fair enough. Before I forget, I've, I've done a formal welcome, I think, 45 minutes into an interview one time. Hey, fair enough. It, it was with Dan Gosling, as a matter of fact. Oh, how well, he and I just started like this, you know, we just started chatting, and, and then I was like, hey, uh, <laughs> people, people knew who he was, you know, they knew who right. I was talking to. But uh, so, Brian, oh, hey, I have to ask, Balmages? Balmages, you got it. Sweet. Brian Balmages, welcome to my podcast, Studio HFL. Thank you for having me. I'm glad you're here. Um, yeah, and under the circumstances, right, uh, we've all got all this free time. And for people who, who perform a lot, like myself, you know, and, and practice and have to spend time on the horn, uh, time down is pretty rough. But for composers and arrangers, right, I mean, this this might seem to me like optimal time for you. Like, you've got an opportunity to be secluded, and you're probably just churning out chart after chart after chart. Is that a, a wildly false assumption? Uh, it is massively wildly false, actually. Um, <laughs> epically wildly false. And I don't use epic very often. Yeah. Um, I, I think... There is definitely this concept that, you know what, I'm not out there, so I'm just going to write. Uh, the problem that I went through, and, and I just, I literally just finished writing an article for uh, the TMEA magazine, the Southwestern Musician, and, and they had asked me to write about this. Um, I went through, so everything started to get shut down in March. And a matter of fact, I, I'm assuming that you were scheduled to play 
um, on the session. So that was my first canceled gig was yeah. was ours together in Indianapolis to record. And uh, at that point, it was sort of like, okay, let's let the two weeks thing go by. <laughs> Hopefully we'll be able to get back online and, and record. And then we bumped it ahead one more time into June. And then I kind of started to realize, you know, that this is just not going to happen. Um, and so for the month of, uh, I was working on finishing a piece, um, <clears throat> which I finished kind of mid-March, about a, about a week after that session. And that was all that was, was supposed to happen. And I was all excited because now I was going to be able to actually record it on the session. Um, and then after that, when the reality of what was going on started to really sink in, I became completely paralyzed. Uh, and I couldn't do anything. And, and John Mackey and I were talking a lot about this because he went through the exact same thing. And I, I know plenty of other composers who, who uh, were posting about it as well. Um, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. And so for the entire month of April, I don't think I wrote a note. I don't think I wrote yeah. one. Um, I tried. Believe me, I tried. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt guilty. And I felt lazy and unproductive because I thought to myself, right now, I should be able to create this age of golden creativity. And I should be able to be more productive than I've ever been. Now, granted, I have two kids at home and my wife was at home and we were trying to deal with all of that as well. Um, but I just kind of felt like I should be getting stuff done. I should be coming up with new projects, new ideas, new everything. And um, nothing was going on. And the more that went on, I think the more difficult it became to do anything. Um, and, and I put all this out there because in the world that we're in right now, filled with social media, um, a lot of the posts that we see on whatever platform that we use are all, we have two choices. We have the choice of watching the news where everything is doomsday, or we look at social media where everybody seems to be perfect all the time and there's no problems and they're all doing great. And there's no middle ground there. And and so um, it's been very important to me to be very open about my struggles as an artist, trying to figure my way through all of this. Now, I will say that as this all went on, um, a lot of your listeners may know of this, uh, but there's a, a group that I eventually joined uh, kind of as a, we, we all came together uh, and it's a group called the Creative Repertoire Initiative. And I hadn't heard of that one. Okay. And so it's a group of, compo- it, it began with a phone call that I had with Richard Floyd in Texas, who's an icon in the band world. Um, and he had explained to me that he had just gotten off the phone with Alan McMurray, who's another iconic band uh, person in the in the world. And uh, Alan was talking to Frank DeKelly and, and Richard Floyd was talking to me. And the whole impetus of this conversation, which happened in very early April, I want to say, was the fact that, look, when schools go back, they had the vision of understanding when they go back, there's going to be a lot of differences and they're going to need stuff to play. They're going to need a curriculum. And what are we going to what are we going to do? Like, what are what are they going to play? And so um, out of that was born this group called CRI, the Creative Repertoire Initiative. I'd invite anybody who is worried 
about repertoire uh, concerns to, you can either go to our website. By the way, um, this is not a sales pitch because actually there's no music for sale on the website at all. Um, and and so we, uh, the, the website is creativerepertoire.com. And then there's also a, a Facebook group that you can search for. Um, there's a Facebook page, but the group is where everything is happening. And, By the same name. Same name. Yep. Yep. Creative Repertoire Initiative. And um, and so the, the point of this group, and, and I'll tell you who's in the group. Um, so I always hate when I do this because I'm afraid I'm going to leave somebody out. Um, so Robert Ambrose, who's at Georgia State, um, he was the he's kind of like the ringleader who schedules all the Zoom calls and everything. Um, and then um, uh, Stephen Bryant, John Mackey, myself, uh, Jennifer Jolly, Julie Drew, Omar Thomas, Frank DeKelly. Uh, Eric Whitaker, Peter Meekin, Alex Shapiro. Uh, it, it's a it's a pretty pretty awesome group of people, and and um, so we started meeting, and and the idea was not man, this is a great opportunity for us to get our names out there, and and we could have done that, and and I think had you put that group forward, a lot of people would just kind of look at that group, but we didn't want to end everybody else's career. Uh, composer-wise. There's a lot of composers who were just getting started, who were suddenly, you know, no income. Um, and, and so we wanted to become a, uh, uh, a force for uh, helping others and be empowered. Um, and so what we started to do was come up with templates, come up with guidelines, come up with concepts, and then share them. And that's what's on the website, a lot of templates that we did and, and ideas and, and examples so that other composers would be empowered to be able to do the same thing. And now on this Facebook group, um, composers from all over the world are sharing music, publishers are sharing music um, that will work. Um, and so th this group became a very therapeutic thing for me, right? <clears throat> it became something where we talked about, we would spend part of our sessions talking about how much all of this just sucks and how we didn't even really want to do it, um, but we understood the need to do it. And, and that became my pathway to return to composing. Mm. Um, and, and I started off by, uh, decided to take this, this, this concept of, of, everybody out there knows what flex music is, right? Um, if you don't have a fan with full instrumentation, you can get a flex piece and it'll work with various instrumentations. However, we wanted to go further than that and develop what we call, you know, full flex or, or fully adaptable music, where now one day you have a full band, great, you can play it. The next day you only have eight trumpet players, great, you can still play it. <laughs> um, and so the, the first piece that I did was an arrangement of my Blue Ridge Reel, which is a very popular, um, we recorded, it's one of the first pieces that I recorded in Indianapolis with you guys. Um, mm -hmm. And it's one of my most successful pieces for younger players. And, and so I adapted it and uh, wanted to see if it would work. And so um, the demo recording that I'm using is of uh, Jose Sabaha, uh, who, of course, <laughs> the listeners will know is the, the lead trumpet player with the Boston Brass. Jose and I are really good friends uh, from Miami. Um, and so we used to play together down there before he left and went on tour with Ricky Martin. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll never forget the day he came in to me and he goes, man, I think I'm gonna have to quit school. And I was like, Jose, you can't quit school. He goes, yeah, but I just I got stuff that I got to do, and I just don't think I can do it. And I was like, Jose, you you can't quit school. You need your degree. Um, and of course, he left school because he did the Live in La Vida Loca tour, right? Um, and he still doesn't have a degree. 
but he's now the Trump professor at Vanderbilt University, so I guess he figured out his way. Um, and so, yeah, the recording that I did, uh, I had emailed, I texted him, and I was like, hey, I, um, how do you do all your miking for your trumpets? Because it sounds really good, and I'm going to try to, you know, uh, I still play a little bit. And I said, I'm going to record myself playing all this. And he goes, I'll oh, just send it to me, and I'll do it for you. And and so um, mm -hmm. it's a, the great relationship that we have, and he's mm -hmm. a very selfless person. And so um, that's the recording. Um, but that became my gateway back to composing. So that's a very long answer uh, to your question. But I will say that I finally, just last night, finished my first band piece since um, this whole onset of things. And ironically, it was for a group uh, that was supposed to premiere at Midwest, which, of course, is not happening. Yeah. But when they commissioned me, they commissioned me with the idea that, look, if I can't do it in Midwest, it's going to be something that I you know, hope to do on my spring concert. And we came up with some concepts. And, and the piece itself is just called Unknown. It's called Unknown because we, don't, we didn't have anything. And it was like a therapeutic way for me to address everything going on right now. Originally, it was going to be called Into the Unknown until I realized Frozen 2. I was like, oh, yeah. can't, can't do that. Um, and and so and, and the funny thing is I never put it together until that video was released of all those studio players doing it, uh, which sounded great. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh no, I can't do that. Um, and so we just went with unknown, right? Less less words, less ink. Everybody's happy, easier to find. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, long answer, but there's a whole lot to unpack. <laughs> a whole lot to unpack in that. And I, I want to go back to something you said very early on. Uh, with okay, so I've interviewed quite a few people since this started, and have asked that question. You know, how have you handled this? And you're the first one. I think a lot of people would identify this, but you're the first one who's used the word guilt mm -hmm. in this. And boy, I think that rings true. Even for me, it's like you know, when you're you're down, it's like you feel guilty for not doing anything. You feel like uh, you're shirking responsibility sometimes about not staying. Uh, sharp on your craft your skills uh guilty for not working right you know maybe by not staying busy it doesn't look like you're trying i mean i don't know if that's kind of what you meant by that but uh well i mean it meant a lot of things i mean some days it was like hey i accomplished getting out of bed today and it's better than not right mm -hmm. um and, and and i still have up and down days um i think a lot of us any one of us who is a full-time working musician because that's what i am i mean uh, people always ask me when I do when I go and guest conduct. They're like, "All right, so what's your like? What's your real job?" Like, this is my real job. <laughs> I am a full-time conductor composer, mm -hmm. um, and, and I think a lot of that shock just came from me asking myself, and I think a lot of us have asked ourselves this: Okay, if I'm a full-time composer, a full-time conductor, or or I'm a full-time performer, right? Um, and and not necessarily an orchestral performer. I mean, there's plenty of them that, that are affected, but let's face it, a, a, a great deal of my friends make an exceptional living as a freelancer. And, and, and it's important that everybody realize that is a real job and, and, and with a very real income. Um, and so um, the question I was just going over over and again was, okay, if I'm a full-time composer and a conductor, then what on earth, who am I if I have no groups out there that can play my music and no groups that I can conduct? Like, who am I? What, what am I here mm -hmm. for? Uh, what's the point of it all? Um, 
and and Julie Drew, who of course is a very well-known name. Um, we would have these text messages and phone calls back and forward, and she just like it just. She's like, I'm I'm a creature of deadlines. She's like, I I my, a lot of my inspiration is driven by knowing who's going to be performing this piece and, and thinking about the performance and the people. And she's like, it's hard to just write aimlessly for with no end in sight and just kind of write. Um, and so this piece was really helpful for me, the one I just finished, because it was like, OK, I know what it's about and I know it's going to be premiered. Uh, I don't know when yet. Um, but it gives me that direction and, and it helps with that feeling of guilt. But, you know, some days it's okay if your victory is to survive that day. And that's perfectly fine. Other days will come where you are, and, and, and people look at me online. I've done a slew of things online now. Um, I've done a ton of stuff. One of the first things that I did was after I kind of started coming out of my fog, um, the first thing I started to realize was, you know what, there's kids all over the world that were supposed to be in my honor groups that are no longer able to play under me. And I wanted to see if there was a way to still make that happen. Um, of course, there's not. And then I started to realize, well, that, that's if you think in a very finite way. Um, I was rereading the book, The Art of Possibility uh, mm -hmm. by Rosamond and Ben Zander. And... Uh, if you start kind of taking away the world of measurement and start thinking about just this world of possibility, I started to realize, you know what? Um, I wonder if it is possible for me to be in the room with all these people. And so I wound up reaching out to Smart Music and we started talking about the idea of, okay, everybody already has access to my music within Smart Music platform, but what if they could see me also? Mm -hmm. And so we, um, it took several weeks and they, they worked their butts off. Um, but they created this virtual conductor platform, and it's still in its very infant stage right now. It's not um, – it's free. It's free. If anybody wants to check it out, they mm -hmm. want to play a little bit, it's um, smartmusic.com slash brian-balmages. Um, and and the, the only thing is you have to do it on a Chrome web browser. You cannot mm -hmm. use Safari or anything like that, and you can't do it on an iPad. You have to have the browser. Mm -hmm. um, and but then you can actually pick one of nine pieces and play along the sheet music is right there it's free mm -hmm. you don't have to uh, there's no subscription even you don't even need to have an account for that mm -hmm. um and you can watch me conduct and and play along and and i'm in a concert hall um i i used a green screen and projected myself into a concert hall in italy that i had conducted in four years ago and uh, it, it was great but that opened up a whole world to me of okay there are things we can do outside of nothing um but it's okay to have those days of nothing because if i didn't have all that time to just sit there and kind of regroup i don't know if i would have come up with that idea and and, and push forward with it the way i did it, it makes me think can you imagine five ten or more years from now uh, people will look back at this technological uh explosion or creative creative explosion or this this explosion of the ability to adapt do you remember in 2020 when we when life came to a standstill and all of a sudden uh, things like this start to happen? It's like we will find a way. <laughs> it makes me think of Jurassic Park. You know, uh, life will find a way, right. right? And music will find a way, or composers will find a way, performers will find a way. I mean, it's I, I look at this as this is well, it's already spawned tremendous. Uh, advancements in technology you know here we are with zoom who had ever heard of zoom before march 13th 
you know, uh, and the projects that you're talking about. I mean, would you have just been going on status quo, right, doing sure. what we've been doing, right, forever? And you look at this as, this is the silver lining, I'm hoping, right, is yeah. that we look at this as, as oh my gosh, the, the uh, and not just uh, advancements in technology and such, but the the deep level of creativity. All of a sudden, we're, com- you know, you're writing pieces to help people get through this. These are these are pieces with deep meaning, or endeavors that will that will help people move forward. Yeah, and and I think the pieces, when you think about it, um, these are not necessarily all stopgap things either, which you alluded to, which which means we're, we're, these are not things that pandemic is over, throw all that in the trash. <laughs> um, we're already seeing, for example, um, college professors are ridiculously excited about this because they have this perpetual problem of their conducting classes and they, they have the instrumentation in that varies and, and is absurd all the time. And they're thinking, wow, I now have a huge body of literature <laughs> that I can use for those conducting classes for the ensemble that has to play. Um, uh, you know, People are thinking, gosh, I now can have work on something in full band, but then break my entire ensemble into chamber groups, and they can all be playing chamber music. Um, Mm -hmm. There's that element of it. And then the other element of it, when you think about music that's fully adaptable, um, there's now this element of kids get to help choose the orchestration. And (laughs) and we've never really thought about that before. But um, you come into, and you have 12 instrumentalists in the room that day. All right. Who do we want to assign to which line? <laughs> and the kids start to make assignments. And, 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 you know, I always joke around, but some smart aleck kid is going to be like, oh, I know, let's put flute and tuba on the same line, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they're going to be like, that's going to sound bad. And, and invariably, some of these combinations that they expect to sound awful are going to sound ridiculously cool. And all of a sudden, they're going to realize, oh, my gosh, like there are all these combinations that we've never even thought about that we can start using. And kids start getting motivated. They want to start becoming part of that process. They become much more aware of the orchestration. Mm-hmm. And then how cool for it if you've got an incredible tuba player to be able to let them play melodic lines <laughs> all day long every day, right? right. Um, <clears throat> there's a great uh, opportunity to engage them uh, on a lot of different levels. Another thing that's come out of this has been this idea of um, modular or uh, cellular pieces that um, take certain cells um, and and list multiple cells. I have a piece called Arithmetric uh, Number One because I do plan on doing more than one. Uh, <laughs> and it was inspired by a piece that Frank DeKelly wrote, which was inspired by the piece in C by Terry Riley, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> which is all based on cell right and, and, and modular uh, ideas. And and so Frank wrote a piece called N C Dorian, and he wrote it. And it was in a Dorian flavor. And then I started my arithmetic series, um, and and the whole idea is that you know, it can work for two instrumentalists, it can work for a hundred instrumentalists, and and the idea is that kids can or or adults, um, they start playing, and maybe some don't start playing right away. You can go to the next line whenever you feel like it. You can skip a line. Some kids might skip five lines to foreshadow material that's coming, and then they mm. might jump right back to where they were mm. um, and and continue on. And then the way I did it, I, I, I did it in sections. So you can do anything you want within a section, but you are not allowed to go on to the next section until the conductor gives you a cue or until mm-hmm. you all arrive there together. 
um, and, and then you go through all that again. Uh, and that gives it a little bit more feeling of a, of a cohesive development and, and, uh, and, and it gives it more structure. Uh, but again, now these kids are involved in the development and the composition uh, of how quickly a piece develops uh, or how rapidly or slowly. Uh, and, and just becomes really exciting and, and, and very different. And the piece never sounds the same at all. You know, I think one of the things that appeals to me most about that is thinking about a kid could play a different line every single time. Mm-hmm. And then you said they become familiar with the orchestration. They all of a sudden become aware of, hey, I played that line yesterday. They hear it in a different voice. Uh, they hear it played maybe by the same instrument, but a different, you know, different style. And I, well, okay, so I, I do you know Dan Galando? He's one of the trumpet players yeah. that does a lot of the recording. Yeah, I know Dan. Um, Dan taught for a long time, middle school, elementary, uh, middle school band, high school band. And uh, we usually sat next to each other during your sessions. Yep. And uh, inevitably, we'll finish a phrase or we'll finish a piece and he'll go. And he'll say, this is crap. God. No. He, oh, says, okay, he says, that was fantastic. He goes, I wish I had this when I was teaching. You know, and, you know, I'm playing second or third trumpet on most of this stuff, and they are not boring parts. Mm-hmm. We're sitting down there, and I'm like, yeah, Dan, you're right. You know, who, you know, some kid playing third trumpet is not going to feel like he's just playing donuts all day long. And and then not just that, but uh, the lines that you give them, right? It's, it's not just the rhythm. It's like there's some really cool things to play. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always look forward to those sessions. Well, one, because I like to work. <laughs> And the other is because I know it's going to be fun to record. It's going to be fun to read, fun to play, you know, and that's something I think, um, well, I mean, obviously that's why you're such a success at this. It's good stuff. I'm trying. I, I try. I mean, I, I never think, I never set out and say, you know, everything that I'm going to write is going to be fun for everybody. Um, I, I do want to make sure everybody's engaged. Uh, but but I never think like okay now I'm gonna put the melody line in, in this voice now I'm gonna put it in that voice I, I think that's too contrived and it never really it just doesn't work for me that way mm-hmm. um, and it makes it feel very planned and very artificial and just just fake I don't know generic um, yeah but- so let's steer this just a little bit another direction for a second let's go back to when uh, you first started composing or arranging what who were you listening to who was uh, who is inspiring you to, ooh, I want to write like that, or I want to do something, uh, you know, develop my own ideas? So it, it came from uh, two standpoints. So at, at the time when I was writing, I was very active as a trumpet player, uh, very active. Uh, and, and so the first thing I was doing was I was writing for the groups that I was playing in. Right, so I in undergrad, I, I, I had the great fortune of playing in the faculty brass quintet for three years, and I would write for them. Uh, and, and not everything I wrote was great, but I got to hear it. Uh, I was in a trumpet ensemble, and I wrote for them. I was uh, in, in the concert band, and I was in the orchestra, and I wrote for them. Uh, and then I went out to, to Los Angeles, and I played in the Henry Mancini Institute when it was still out there. And um, they wanted to feature the trumpet section, uh, but they couldn't find a piece that had five, so I wrote for them. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I was just writing for anybody I could get my hands on, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people that I was listening to, so th- th- there's the most generic, I mean, the generic, but the obvious answer uh, that a lot of us use is John Williams is one of the very first ones that was a, a huge role model to me and still is. Uh, but let me explain why. 
I think when I was really young, it was all about the film music, and and, and it was just wow. Uh, I love all of this, and and the power, and the the way the music developed. I didn't understand it, it was about the development of the music until much later, but that's why those themes stick with you because he constantly develops them. He he intertwines them, uh, and and that really inspired me. But as I got older and started to get more into his music. What really inspired me, and Frank DeKelly was another one uh, in this similar genre, in terms of uh, similar uh, concept, I should say, that not only were these people writing film music, but they were equally at home, uh, in case John Williams, equally at home in, in a concert hall, right? And he was writing concertos. Um, he's got his trumpet concerto, his tuba concerto. He's got a, a million uh, things that he's done that works really, really well. And some of his music, I mean, good grief, the, the soundtrack to Superman, that could be a symphony just by <laughs> itself. Um, and it can be a pretty contemporary symphony too. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing, just the destruction of Krypton. Go back and listen to that and just listen to like, it's like 10 minutes of good grief. Like, how do you, that's a film score? Uh, and, and so that inspired me. But then the other part that I really liked was the fact that he was the conductor of the Boston Pops. And so for me, there was like, okay, I want to be that. I want to be not the conductor of the Boston Pops, but I want to be somebody who can write music that people enjoy playing, but I want to be a conductor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was essential for me because um, as much playing as I was doing, and I loved playing. I really, really did. It was um, like many people. Uh, for me, it was like I couldn't function until I had an hour on the horn in the mornings. I just that was like coffee for me, mm-hmm. uh, and and it's what I did, and and I and I loved it. Um, as I started to get more involved in the world of, of composing, and uh, it became difficult for me when I would travel and do a residency and come home, and then have my wife at home, or in the case, wife and kids. And then say, okay, I've been on the road for a few days. Now I'm going to come home, and the first thing I have to do is go into the basement and practice for three hours. Um, that became a little bit prohibitive for me, and and so that's where the conductor in me was really born, because I didn't want to stop performing, mm-hmm. but I couldn't continue to play trumpet as much as I was, especially with traveling. People are calling you to come play, and you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not here. I'm on the road doing mm-hmm. a gig, mm-hmm. um, and, and so that kind of all all spun into the conductor-composer world. Now, um, in addition to John Williams, there were other composers that were really inspiring me that I was listening to, and those were composers like Mahler and Stravinsky and Ravel, uh, more contemporary composers like John Adams. Um, There was a period of time much later, though, that I was getting into the music of Mason Bates, uh, mm. Listening to some of the stuff, I mean, I was really le- enjoying the. Steve, I still do enjoy the stuff that Steve Bryant was doing, um, and, and of course, I really respect John Mackey and and, and Julie Drew and, and and contemporary folks. And, and Frank DeKelly was a big part of that too. Somebody who can write for really young players, but at the same time, write some <laughs> ridiculously awesome music for professionals, not just bands. Right, uh, Frank writes for everybody, mm-hmm. and that's something that I wanted to do too. I didn't want to just be a band guy, and and, uh, and I love that people come up to me sometimes and they say, uh, I was at Midwest one year, and and uh, I was having a conversation with somebody, and, uh, and a band person came up to me and was like, oh, I love this band piece that you wrote. And the other person looked at him and goes, oh, I didn't know you write band music. They thought I was only orchestral, and I loved it. I was like, hey, this is great. That's what I want. Uh, and and so um, those are an example of of people that I've really kind of looked up to and 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 really enjoyed. That, that answers one of the questions I was I was going to ask is what do you enjoy writing more for? But uh, you enjoy writing all of it. 
I can't write for just one thing. Uh, I need the variety to keep me going. Um, so I couldn't just write band music all the time. I, I don't think I could just write orchestra music all the time either. Uh, I need both. I really, really do. And I do chamber music too. And, 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 and that, it just keeps the variety. It keeps it, it a bit spicy and uh, just gives me a chance to always feel like I'm doing something different, something mm -hmm. new. I hope you're enjoying today's interview. This is just a short break to remind you to visit Messina Covers, Pickett Blackburn, Hammond Design, Eastman Winds, and the SE Shires websites to check out their exceptional products and services. They design and produce the things that make trumpet playing easier and more enjoyable. You can find links to their websites in the show notes. Now, back to the interview. Like most universities these days, uh, I've got a trumpet ensemble down at UND, and uh, uh, this is going to sound blasphemous, but I can only take about 10 minutes sonically before before I'm like, you know, a trombone ensemble, I hate to say it, I could listen to a trombone ensemble all day. I, right? I, I'm telling you, I mean, I, I wrote for um, uh, Jeremy Wilson, who's down at Vanderbilt. Uh, he commissioned me to write a piece for trombone octet and soloist, and, and when he sent that to me, I listened to it like, 20 times and it just man it just doesn't get old but that's because you've got the bass trombone right. and you've got that you've got that wide register you have a lot to work with well if trumpet players have anything to say with it you've got like eight octaves to work with right well, yeah <laughs> well yeah but not consistently right? right uh but you know to i see the challenge in writing and there's been some fantastic writing for trumpet ensemble sure. i'm not knocking it i'm just saying uh, we are we're limited i mean and you can only put piccolo trumpet in and flugelhorn as your, you know, it doesn't work all the time. Uh, but I appreciate that people can write for like instruments and still find those colors and not forget that mutes can really make a huge difference in that too. And so I think that's where uh, I'm starting to enjoy, the, I'm starting to look for the arrangements, the trumpet ensemble arrangements that add all those colors in. It's not just open B flat trumpet the whole right. way through, you know. Put a little but, open C trumpet in there. Yeah, because <laughs> it changes everything. <laughs> right? it all. Yeah. So um, uh, let's go back to, well, um, you met Jose in Miami. You guys went to school there. Is that mm -hmm. right? So you grew up in Florida. No, I grew up in Baltimore, which is where I am now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I grew up in Baltimore, and then I did my undergrad at James Madison in Virginia. Yeah. And studied with a, a guy named Jim Kleesner, who uh, was the best gift to me that I could have ever asked for. Um, good person, good role model, exceptional teacher. He was a Chickowitz student and um, went through an embouchure change with him, which was very necessary. Uh, it was impacting my endurance, my range. It was, it was impacting everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so he took me through that. I got through that actually fairly quickly. Um, it was a freshman in college, so it didn't, we adapt to everything quickly at that point. Uh, and, and then uh, that began my, my kind of journey forward and uh, <clears throat> was huge. And so I spent five years there uh, and, and, and loved every minute of it. I really, really did. Uh, and then when I got to Miami, uh, that's when I met Jose. I met I mean, there's a bunch of guys that were. The funny thing about Miami was it was like a, a melting pot of talent. Um, 
you know, there were guys that were touring with Harry Connick. There were there were guys. I mean, and a lot of them. It was like Miami was like a stopping place. Like when I'm not on the road, I'm gonna try to get a degree. Uh, <laughs> and 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 so uh, and Jose was one of those guys. Uh, and so it was a great opportunity to make some incredible connections. Vance Wolf was there. Um, Vance plays uh, principal trumpet in the Louisiana Philharmonic now. Um, and so we got to uh, play with each other too. And um, there's just a lot of incredible talent down there uh, mm-hmm. that, that I was able to connect with and uh, learn from, absorb what the people around me were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a great time. And musically, that really unlocked a lot in me too. Uh, uh, on the trumpet side, compo- composing side, or both? On the musician side. Just musician. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was playing in the quintet, the, so I mentioned to you, I played in the faculty brass quintet at JMU. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about invaluable experience. Uh, for three years, I would, for four hours a week, sit in an ensemble with all of the brass professors at the university rehearsing. Um, and, and the trombone player that sat next to me was Jeannie Little, who um, a lot of people might know. She was a, a founding member of, of PRISM. Uh, Prism or Prisma, the, the, the trombone quartet. She's an amazing mm, player. Mm-hmm. And um, she's now at Montana State, I believe. Um, but she would always lean over to me and she'd say, man, you sound great. Um, are you ever going to play a phrase? And, <laughs> and I'd say, uh, what do you mean? And so I always ask her, well, what, do you, what do you mean? You want me to play it louder? Do you want me to play it? Like, what, what do you want me to do? And I was looking for, I was always asking, like, do you want it to be more articulated? Do you want me to, like, do you want me to have a crescendo somewhere? What do you want me to do? Uh, and, and then occasionally we would be playing something. One time it was a piece by uh, Eric Oisen. And, and she looked over at me and she's like, you really like this, don't you? I'm like, yeah, why? Because you're playing phrases. Mm-hmm. Oh. But I, but I didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really didn't get any of that until I got to Miami. And, and so that informed my playing a great deal. I realized... Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm playing a whole note, I've got to do something with the whole note. Um, but not just do something, but have a reason for it. Uh, and then that, in turn, informed the way I write. And then, of course, that all combined into the way I conduct. So thinking about that, you know, seeing your keyboard and your, your computer behind you, when you write, do you often pick up the trumpet and play through that yourself to see how that fits? Or do you just trust that as you put it in by keyboard that that's it? I do not pick up the trumpet. I do not because number one, I want whatever is in my head to stay sounding good. <laughs> so I don't play very much anymore. I, I really don't. Um, I do play every year. I think you and I have talked about this, but every year I play Easter. Mm-hmm. That's my mm-hmm. gig, right? Um, and and I play down in Florida, in Naples, Florida. Um, I, I used to play down there when I was uh, down in Miami. Uh, I was in the Miami Symphony, which is a regional orchestra, but it, it was a good orchestra and, and mm-hmm. we had fun. Um, and so I would always play this gig in Naples, and, and I left Florida in 2003. Uh, my wife and I got married, and we were there for a year, and then we moved back. Uh, but I never stopped playing that gig. And it's great. I, I play with um, uh, Dave Dash. Uh, Dave um, was in the Naples Phil at the time, but he was also a former trumpet player with the Marine Band and, and took the mm-hmm. Naples Phil gig. And now he's teaching, uh, I believe, at North Carolina School for the Arts. Um, and uh, great guy, uh, amazing player, and and so uh, most of the folks in the quintet are, are Naples Phil players, and mm-hmm. it just became a great outlet for me. However, if it's not in the two and a half months leading up to Easter, you don't want to hear me play. You don't want well, to hear it. It takes time. I uh, I interviewed Jim Stevenson uh, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, 
and you know asking him the same the same thing and and he's not picked up his trumpet for quite some time and ironically uh jim and i met after one of my gigs playing mm -hmm. at naples in that church because mm -hmm. um, his father was playing organ mm -hmm. and uh and the music director becky weiss uh asked me she's like do, do you know jim i said no and she goes oh come here and she introduced the two of us and and we had our first conversation and we have become dear friends mm -hmm. um uh, whenever we're in the same city we try to get together for dinner uh, at least when that was a possibility uh and uh and so I, that's where he and i actually met and he and i have very similar backgrounds he was a much better trumpet player than i was uh <laughs> but uh we have very similar backgrounds that we are both former um trumpet players who kind of just started writing but never really studied it just kind of started doing it well and rather well both of you right i mean it's some really good stuff and i'm thinking about it in two very diverse Right. I mean, he's writing a lot of concertos and large orchestral works and yeah, uh, and you're doing what you're doing, but neither is insignificant. No, and we definitely cross over like he wrote a piece for Jeremy Wilson and we were on that CD together and and we what we wind up getting tied into similar projects. Um, definitely. Uh, now, I have not written for the Minnesota Orchestra or the Chicago Symphony, and, and those are incredible things that he has been very well deserved of, of doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I haven't kind of gone into that world. Uh, I haven't even tried to get into that world. Um, mm -hmm. And and I don't even know how to get into that world at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm also very happy doing what I'm doing. And, and I feel like educationally wise, I'm able to make a huge impact. And yet I still have that relationship with professional musicians where I'm still writing for guys in the Marine Band. I still, I premiered a mm -hmm. piece with the United States Army Band in February, right before this all went down. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I still have that outlet that artistic outlet for that very high level mm -hmm. player. Um, I don't live there all the time, but at the same time, I really enjoy where I'm at. And ironically, uh, Jim has always said to me like, hey, how can I get more into that world that you're in as well? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it seems like the grass is always a little greener uh, <laughs> on, uh, on the other side, but um, you know, I, I think there's just wonderful that, that we're seeing people being creative in a various number of situations, ensembles, situ yeah. and, and Jim right now is in great shape because he has a huge chamber music catalog, and, mm -hmm. and I think that's going to be very well suited for him. Mm -hmm. uh, me, I live mostly in large ensemble music, at least I have been, and, and I always joke around because when we talk about the career of a professional musician, um, you've got to be very careful because um, you've got to make sure I always treat being a professional musician like like managing a mutual fund or, or a whole portfolio. And let me explain. Um, if you want to be successful, you have to diversify, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and, and so that um, if the stock market takes a huge hit, you're not all in one fund and that's gone, right? You've, you've spread things out and that's the mark of a good investor. And so I had income coming from sheet music sales of people buying my music. I had income coming from uh, people performing my music in venues like Carnegie Hall. I had income coming in from uh, commissions that I was getting, from uh, residencies that I was doing, from guest conducting, from clinics. And, and so I had like six or seven different sources of income. And I would always say, you know, it's great. I was like, if no matter and it, even if all the the band people started to hate my music, I had the orchestral folks that were loving it. <clears throat> so I had like all the stuff, and I was joking. I was like, you know, really, I I I'm somewhat recession proof. I I 
went right through the recession without any issues at all. It's like, really, I think the only thing that could ever shut me down is like something like a worldwide pandemic. Well, here we go, right? Nice job. So, wait, so, wait. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Check, check that one off the list. Yeah, yeah great. Right? Yeah, I don't think anybody's going to make you the scapegoat for that, though. It's not your no, not. For calling I that. Not. So I'm, I'm curious how you prepare for a recording session. Uh, you know, I mean, the obvious things are there. You've got to make sure that the parts are as as good as you can get them, even though, you know, occasionally we do find. Although I don't remember finding very many, if any, errors in any of the FJH sessions. Usually any errors that we find are, are we do find a random here and there, but usually it's from music that got sent in so late that we haven't had a time, time to engrave it. Yeah. But yeah, I take pride on my on on not having very many wrong notes in our music at all. Yeah, uh, well, not written, you know. Right. Leave it leave it to people like us to make them wrong for you. Uh, but you know, preparing, and then to schedule it out and to to execute the sessions, sometimes in two days, mm -hmm. right? And to get through all that music, um, can you kind of walk me through what it's like to to prepare, arrive? record and and then what happens after that um so the first part of the tr is just planning out the pacing of the session uh and, and and i always tell people so recording sessions are are uh, we all know when you're under a microscope everything kind of changes and 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 the the big thing about these recording sessions that i have to decide is that in these sessions that we're doing, and, and this is different, okay, than another recording session, but in these sessions, my goal is not to win a Grammy, right? My goal is to create a highly representative version of this piece that is also incredibly musical. And that's a huge thing to me, right? Um, if it's not musical, then the whole point of the session is lost, and you might as well just put it out on no performer or something like that which actually is becoming more musical in itself, but that's, mm -hmm. that's a, a sidebar. Um, and, and so for me, uh, you have to realize that when we originally started putting out these recordings, they functioned as reference recordings for conductors mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. pick out the music. But as, uh, as kids are consuming these recordings more and more, as uh, platforms like smart music are developing more and more, where kids are playing along, these recordings have taken on an entirely new role and they have to be more musical because otherwise you're teaching kids to play along with mechanical robotic recordings. Mm. And so um, the, the hardest part for me is to plan out, okay, how much time do I need to get through all of this? And, and I've now come up with a formula where I'll say, okay, if it's a, if it's a grade four, it's roughly gonna take me 30 to 45 minutes. I can do maybe one, one and a half to two of those an hour. Um, if it's a grade three, I can usually do somewhere between two to three an hour. If it's a grade two, I can usually do four. If it's a grade one, I can do, and and all that. And so, and then I look at the time, right? If, if the piece, if it's a grade five, but it's only two and a half minutes long, okay, maybe I can do two of those. But if it's a grade uh, two and it's seven minutes long, then, then that, so that all takes uh, into consideration. So the first part of it is really just planning in terms of the, the order. The other thing that I do before I get there is I try to plan group pieces together that I think will complement each other very well in an hour uh, when we're in the room. So um, sometimes we will go on a march kick where it's like, hey, we're set up for marches right now. <laughs> 
let's just knock them out and we'll do four in an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, other times we might be doing something where we're playing something along with an electronic track. And like, well, hey, they've already got their headphones on. We're going to do two or three of those in an hour. Um, so that's a bit of it. Um, I'm, I'm very well known in that room as being one of the very few conductors that comes in that doesn't insist that everything is on click and we do a lot on stick. And I know, I, 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 I always joke around that I am single-handedly responsible for breaking all the headphones in that studio because when I tell them, they see me come up there, all the headphones come off and they drop them on the floor. Yeah. And so I thought, oh, um, but to me, it, you know, it's funny, when, when we're in a concert hall, we don't ever play on a click and, and, and somehow we're able to do it. Um, the, the trick is, of course, you've got players in ISO booths and all this and they've got to be, but I still find that it generally works. And, and of course, there are certain pieces that, again, I'm not trying to win a Grammy, that I just think, you know what, it's, it's easier for us to get it together on the click and then I can show the musical phrase. Um, so that's all part of that too. Um, then in terms of, um, so that's kind of how I plan for it. When, when I get there, uh, everybody in the room knows that uh, even though I don't play trumpet anymore, I am extremely aware of what it feels like to be not just in that seat, but to be in a performer's chair looking at the conductor. And I know exactly what it's like to feel like this guy's wasting my time or <laughs> this guy's like on top of it. This is great. And, and, and no matter how professional you are, it affects your playing. And, 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 and it affected mine. You know, mm -hmm. I remember a guy showing up 30 minutes late to a recording session that I was playing at one time. And then we were playing through stuff and there were wrong notes in it. And, and he was going up, come on guys, time is money, time is money. And, and just threw us all off. And the whole session was a, was, was a crapshoot. It mm -hmm. really was. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I <coughs> pride myself on being efficient Right, And so I want to make sure, number one, that everybody in the room realizes that I'm not going to waste your time. And that really helps the, the pacing of the session. People are more uh, focused about getting a good take right away because mm -hmm. it's not like we're going to run a take and say, okay, let's do it again. Uh, you know, really try to be specific about that. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing that I truly try to do is that um, I conduct very differently in a recording session than I do in, in a live performance. Um, you all have, have definitely come to know me in terms of just my approach. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that sometimes, even though in a, in, a, in a performance situation, if we had rehearsed something two or three times, I wouldn't necessarily be so big, but there are certain times that I will subdivide something that I would not subdivide mm -hmm. in a live performance, or I would stay a little bit larger than I normally would in a live performance, and it's for efficiency to make sure that we don't get apart. Right. Um, and I trust sometimes that you're going to see me conducting bigger, but you all are going to see the diminuendo on the page and you're going to say, okay, there's a diminuendo. He's just trying to slow us down together. Um, and, and so there's definitely a lot that I do that's recording session conducting that is not mm -hmm. live concert conducting. Well, trust us. We're good at ignoring the gestures from the, the yeah, podium. Trust me. I was there. <laughs> I know it. Right. I know it. I know it all too well. Yeah. No. Uh, and I will say it helps the vibe in the group when you've got somebody who really comes in and knows what they're doing on the podium. And I'm not going to name names or, or uh, venues where we record. But, um, yeah, I always like I said, I always look forward to coming in and playing, not just because of the parts, but because uh, you don't, you're not wasting our time. We have a good time. We, we 
I won't say plow through. Well, maybe when, you know, at the end of the day, when we get to the group, uh, is it group one? I forget which is the high, the higher or lower, but you know, young, so sometimes we just, we red light the, all the, hours, right, go. It, boom. And uh, that's a lot of fun. You know, so oh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and I, I always, uh, there's a phrase that I stole from Edward Peterson, Pete Peterson, who was the conductor of the Washington Winds. And, and uh, invariably, sometimes you look at a piece and it's either you're behind schedule or, or maybe the last piece took a little bit too long, or you can just kind of sense that people, um, there's a vibe and you just need to motivate. And, and so sometimes we will, it happens every session, we'll pull up a piece and everybody will look at it and, and I'll just say to everybody, it's like, well, does anybody have any wrong notes before we played a note and everybody will look at it and they'll say, <laughs> right, well, we've rehearsed enough. Here we go. And we'll just do a one taker. And, and, and very often when you, you kind of set people up that way, absolutely, mm -hmm. it can be a one taker. Um, or you get that one guy that plays like on beat three on the quarter rest and it's like, ah, and everybody makes fun of them, but it changes the vibe again. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, it's well, like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Step right. in the hole. I, that's never happened to me before. <laughs> well, it's, it's the best thing though, is when you are sitting there with a bunch of professional players and you're playing a grade one piece, that has got like two quarter notes, a rest and a quarter and you hear bum, bum, eh. Bomb, and then the whole room just erupts in laughter because it's like you, your whole life has been for that one moment and you stepped on the rest. Right. And it's on tape as long as the guy in the booth doesn't, uh, you know. Tape, yep. And, and yeah. someday we'll have to put out all the outtakes of it. But yeah. yeah. So what about these pieces that, uh, you know, you ran out of time? You didn't get it recorded. Do you, you don't wait until the next year or the next session to, because sometimes there's a lot of time between yeah, session. no, no, we do. So, so the way I plan the sessions, I, I usually plan enough time that we will be able to finish everything that I have planned for the current year. And then I will always have a handful of pieces on deck where it's like, hey, uh, if I have some extra pieces and we have the time, I'll get a head start on next year. Mm -hmm. And I'll just start jumping in. And so sometimes I might have four extra pieces in the folder. We only get to two um, or we only get to one. And, and so it is, we just kind of roll with it however we need to. But um, I always like to overstuff the folders because you don't, the, wor the worst thing in the world is to be done an hour early and still be paying everybody for that hour. And then everybody just looking at each other saying, well, we don't have anything. Um, and, and so you want to have something on deck. The, the, the closest time I didn't have something was when I was doing an orchestra session there. And we were flying through things. It, the, we were just clicking. Uh, it was great. And, uh, we had we were running out of music quickly, and so over the lunch break, I wrote an arrangement of Amazing Grace. Um, for, I think I was on this session. No, because this was strings only. There was something like this happened. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I did do something. I did do something uh, where we were running out of music, and that night I went to my hotel room and I wrote a piece and brought it in the next day. That's it. Yeah, uh, I did do that one year. Uh, and and so, but this was something I wrote over lunch for piano and orchestra, mm -hmm. and I played the piano part, and I conducted them from the uh, from the piano, and uh, and Michael Graham just kind of set it up real quick. You can actually, um, if, if people go to my SoundCloud account, uh, just Brian Balmage, just I'm the only one in the world, but they can actually find that <laughs> recording of Amazing Grace that um, is me playing piano, and uh, all the string players, and we did that in one take, actually two wow. takes, I take two takes. And uh, yeah, just had extra time. And so I had a 45 minute lunch break to, to write that and, and then mm -hmm. um, extract the parts real quick and, and off we went. 
So that was a lot of fun. But yeah, it's a great challenge every now and then to say, you know what, can I do this? Um, if I need to write fast, if I'm in an emergency where something's got to get done, can I actually do it? So let's say you're, you've given, you're given the right amount of time uh, and money, a commission, or maybe this is something you want to do on your own. What is your, what would be your dream piece to write or dream soloist to write for? Maybe that's a silly wow. question. I don't know. I mean, I think one of the big projects that I've always wanted to do is to write a musical. That's something mm -hmm. that I've been wanting to do for for a long time, and, and I, I and I enjoy playing piano, and and I have a I grew up listening to rock music. I grew up listening to you know pop and, and, and all that, and and a lot of that has found its way into my music in some way or another. Um, I've always wanted to write a musical, and I've actually started one. But if I just had unlimited amounts of time and unlimited funding. Uh, I think I would just buckle down and, and truly dive in and, mm -hmm. and see where it took me. So that that's probably my, my big, big project, right? That's the big thing that I want to do. Um, eventually, I would love to do a symphony. And, and I've had several people that have said to me, hey, listen, what would it take for you to just be able to sit down and write a symphony? Like, how much money would it take for you to be able to, t to table everything else that you're working on and just focus in on that? Mm -hmm. And And... I, I'm intrigued by the idea, but I'm also terrified. I'm terrified because um, if somebody says, hey, we're going to just pay you a ton, and the Army Band Commission was a, was, was a little bit like that, but um, it's like if, you, if we're just giving you the money that you need and you can just focus only on that for a year or six months or however long it takes you, um, and then what happens if I do that and then we hear it and, and they're like, well, it doesn't really sound any different than anything else you've done. It just sounds like the same. Uh, you, you, you're terrified to put yourself out there like that. <laughs> but at the same time, that's the only way you grow. It's interesting that you, that you say that. And, you know, you think about some of the big composers who would take years to finish the symphony, right? right. And you think putting a year on it might seem like that's just not enough time. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, because you've got you to sleep on it. You know, you've got to... You've got to distance yourself from it. I think many times you've got to be able to to walk away from it. And then uh, you've got guys like Jim Stevenson, who's just a fountain of musical whatever, and <laughs> and it just spews out of him all the time. Yeah. Um, and 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 even though he writes extremely fast, it's all great music. And mm -hmm. and um, I hate him for that. <laughs> and I've told him that. And there are times that I've had a piece come very quickly. Absolutely, mm -hmm. there are times. Uh, but to be able to sit down and say, I'm going to compose a symphony, and and for it to take a month or even sometimes less than a month uh, blows my mind you know what impresses me is simple i think sometimes is the best mm -hmm. and can be the most beautiful and the thing comes to mind you mentioned pete meacham earlier peach pete meekin thank you I had a peach impediment right there uh song of hope yeah simple but able to evoke so much emotion and you know of course because of the attachment to ryan anthony there's there's deeper meaning to that but still if you listen to just the piece itself it's like there's not a lot going on here but man is it moving man is it affecting it's incredibly moving and, and it's the message is everything and i think the other thing is that um anybody who had ever met ryan anthony um i mean you've seen all of the messages that have popped up and i and i i met him uh once or twice we we, we certainly weren't friends uh but you know, we knew each other. Uh, Jim was a connection for me there, um, Jose as well. Um, but one of the most incredible people you could ever possibly meet, and, and the work that he did was evidence of that. Mm -hmm. um, 
obviously an incredible musician. And then Pete uh, Meekin is also one of the most incredible people, just selfless, wonderfully spoken, genuine people. And you put that together and then you add this terrible, tragic thing that happened, yet all of the good that had came out of it. And, and that's like the recipe for, for exactly what happened, which is mm -hmm. that piece being played all over the world all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and and being a piece that really is is an iconic way of 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 honoring all of those people who are are cancer survivors and mm -hmm. and who have not survived. You would be surprised. Actually, you probably wouldn't be surprised. The number of people I've talked to uh, in interviews who are survivors, and some are not as open as Ryan. You know, right. I can appreciate that. <clears throat> I'm a cancer survivor. See, I you know, know and it's but I don't. It, I'm okay to say it, but you know that's I don't. But I didn't have to suffer the way uh, many people suffer with chemo and radiation. So sometimes I even have a hard time admitting that. Um, but yeah, you know, just but there's beauty can be found in in so much music, uh, even if even if the reason it was written was for well, I shouldn't say a tragic reason. I'm gonna have to edit this part out. This is this is the beauty of being in control on this side of things. Uh -huh. It's like I'm gonna <laughs> go back and listen and take that out. But um, I will say though that that um, when you talk about music and, and everything that it can do, and 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 certainly talking about Ryan Anthony and all of that. Um, so the the piece that I wrote for the Army Band uh, that was commissioned by um, a, a lieutenant uh, in the Army, uh, Elizabeth Elliot. And the whole reason that piece was was written was because she lost her unborn child and had mm. to uh, had to deliver her daughter, um, and so she went through a stillbirth, obviously, and got to hold her and, and everything. Uh, but she was looking for music to help her get through that, and she couldn't find anything, uh, and and she felt alone, and she and so this piece that I wrote is love and light and 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 she asked me uh we talked a lot about it about it and her experiences and everything uh, but i think music is a great way for us to tackle some really difficult issues that we don't want to talk about or it's a way to create a community of people i mean when we did the premiere i would say half of the audience were people that had lost uh, uh a child uh, either after birth or many had had gone through a miscarriage um, and it was insane uh, it was crazy uh, how big that community was and so I think music is a way to bring us all together and and in this time of distancing and, and, and all that I think music is a great way to kind of reforge those pathways between us and, and make sure we all still realize there is a community Wow I'm gonna excerpt that I mean that's it's beautifully said um, Byron Stripling uh, commented that we as musicians have such a responsibility when we come out of this um, you know not just from the, the the composition side but from performing he says you know we have this responsibility to really deliver people need us now more than ever is what he said and i think that's true you know it's because music serves a real purpose we need we need food we need science to get us through right but what's the reason right to, and, and we got to remember, number one, uh, as musicians, we are by nature creative people. 
and 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 don't tell me oh i'm i'm just a, a performer uh, so i'm not creative absolutely we're creative people i mean you've you've got to um when when things are are frustrating you technically wise you've got to come up with creative ways of solving those um when you're playing you've got to be creative in your interpretation that's why you know when when 50 trumpet players walk into a uh, an audition and all 50 of them don't miss a note. There's a reason why one of them gets the gig. Um, it's because of their creativity during that and the way they're approaching things. Um, and and so talking a lot about that, we are creative people by nature and we can use that. Um, and then the other thing is that, um, of course, SEL, social emotional learning is becoming, it's been a buzzword for a couple of years now, but of course right now it has become the buzzword and that's exactly what music does. That's why that's why kids uh, that are in school or in the band room, in the orchestra room, in the choir room, they're there before school. They hang out there after school. Um, it becomes like a fraternity, uh, a sorority of sorts, and and um, they just want to be there. And it's that connection that they develop. And so that's going to be crucial going forward. And and that's the biggest argument for music programs right now is that this is catering to the emotional health. Uh, of the kids who are going to be many of which are going to be home well and maybe not in the best of circumstances absolutely not in the best of circumstances brian thank you so much for sharing everything today this is exactly what i was hoping for is you know it's one thing to get you know get to know you a little bit in passing hey you know glad you're back in indy looking forward to playing your session today but here we are i'm finally getting to know you pretty well and i think a lot of people are being glad to hear this uh, and see this too, and, and understand a little bit more about you and the way you tick. And, uh, and although uh, you're the perfect interview, because I just have to say hi and you go, <laughs> and it's and this is this is perfect. That's uh, why that's why I get so many of these. It's not that I'm actually good. It's just that I talk a lot. Hey, thanks for joining me today for this interview. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to hear more, you can visit Patreon.com/studiohfl. By becoming a supporter, you can have access to content that is exclusively available to my Patreon patrons. I'd also like to remind you to visit Apple Podcast and leave a star rating and a review, and don't forget to follow me on social media. This has been a production of Powell Music, LLC, and has been supported by the generosity of sponsors Messina Covers, Eastman Winds, S.E. Shires, Hammond Design, and Pickett Blackburn. Once again, I'm your host, Larry Powell, and you can find out more about me and the rest of the podcast at StudioHFL.com. Thanks for listening, and keep coming back for more great interviews.